Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran. And if some episodes of this show are like delicious desserts, then I have to say this one is like eating your vegetables. Just in time for tax season, we have a special episode on tax tips for musicians. There's a lot of good info here for freelancers of all kinds, and for people thinking about running their own studio. But if you're completely turned off by taxes, skip on over to the next episode with Ellen Stanley, who leads the Minnesota Music Coalition and organized this tax talk that you're going to hear. If you're in Minnesota and want to check out these Minnesota Music Coalition events, go to mnmusiccoalition.org. Also, thanks to Taylor Lewin and Music Mafia Minnesota for co-hosting this event. Visit facebook.com slash musicmafiamn to see what they're up to. And if you're new to this show, visit composerquest.com to find all the other episodes, which are usually centered around the creative process of composing and songwriting. Also, feel free to get in touch with me. Either email me, charlie at composerquest.com, or find ComposerQuest on Facebook or Twitter. Now let's get to this tax talk by attorney and CPA Brad Begley. In addition to his helpful talk, he also gave us a very detailed packet of info, which I posted on my blog at composerquest.com slash tax tips. Also, Brad wanted me to mention that not everything he says will apply to your tax situation, so make sure to consult a tax professional about any questions you might have. Now let's go to this talk with Brad Bagley, where someone was asking about how you should deduct CD production costs in your tax return. The whole thing about CDs is um, oftentimes across the board, because a lot of tax preparers don't often always work with a lot of musicians that are up, aren't up in the law. People will just, when they buy CDs, they'll just write them off immediately, like other artists. Like if, if you were a painter and you made a bunch of paintings, you could write that off immediately because there's an exception to the uniform capitalization rules for artists in general. But um, the IRS says for, for filmmakers and you know, musicians, for the actual printing of the CD, that you have to capitalize. Okay, so, and basically you've got two costs there. One is the cost of printing the CD, which that's going to go in your inventory, and say it's a buck a CD, then as you sell them down, you'll write off that cost of buying those CDs. And then there's the studio time, okay, and that's intellectual property, um, and that gets amortized then over theoretically the earning expectations of the CD. Usually we use like two years. You know, it just depends how long you think your CD is going to be generating, you know, significant revenue, okay? I've never had the IRS complain about two years. Three years, maybe. just depends on who the artist is, okay? But, but you'll write that, you know, studio time off over that period of time. And you'll start that running, that, that write-off of those studio costs, when the, studio, the CD is finally ready for sale. Now, here's the one big exception. A lot of times clients go out and they make a CD really not so much for selling it off the stage or on their website, but it's more promotional. It's to get to the you know, people out in LA or New York or wherever. That arguably could be advertising and deductible immediately. You can just forget all about amortizing and doing all that. But if you actually do print CDs, you probably ought to put that into inventory on the cost of goods, which is on the second page of the Schedule C. May I ask, how about yeah. for a digital download? 
if you're not actually going to print the CD. There's no cost then? Yep, you're good. Okay. Yeah. Um, I do have a question you uh, that you might be addressing later, and I know a couple of us were talking about this, so I know I'm not mm -hmm. the only one wondering about um, if you have, say, you have a band and you're reporting your income. Uh, when do you? When are you at the point where you need to start? Where you like have to start issuing W twos to your band members? You know, is it just for anything you can get? It? I mean. I'm because well, as soon as you, of course, do that, then your band members will also be equally, right, because the government knows. Well, first off, we need to clarify between W-2s and 1099s, right. mm -hmm. okay? You're saying W-2s, mm -hmm. so that, that's a lot more work involved okay. for a smaller band to have to give W-2s to the other bandmates. Um, that means you usually have to hire a payroll company like Paychex or ADP oh, okay. or somebody. Um, payroll is often screwed up, so I don't recommend that you try to do it yourself out the shoot unless you got some background in preparing payroll. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and, and here's the thing. When I sit in front of a client, they ask me, well, is this person a subcontractor or are they an employee? I get this all the time. You know, in the construction industry, it's been a big issue about two or three years ago where they had to start withholding on uh, certain construction carpenters. Mm -hmm. They gave 299, so they all went out and had to form LLCs. Um, but anyway, the, it's always, I always say, oh yeah, they're an employee, because there's no blowback to me if, if, if I go that way. Sure, it costs you more money, but there's no problem. The problem is if you call somebody an, a subcontractor and say they get laid off at another day job and they go over to Minnesota Unemployment and try to claim unemployment, or they get mad at you. I had this happen to a small um, art studio in South Minneapolis, a little art school, and, and the one employee had been called a subcontractor, you know, made about $10,000 a year, they're kind of helping out, got into a tiff. She went over to Minnesota UC and launched an audit at the little art school, saying, well, they're calling everybody subcontractors and they really should be employees. And trust me, the IRS or the Minnesota UC department, they can always find that somebody's an employee. It's a subjective number of things you look at. And typically people are employees, you know. So, but on the other hand, with bands, I mean, this is one of the places on the podcast, don't rely on this, talk to your own accountant. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's a gray area question. It comes down to kind of materiality, you know, to some degree. But on the other hand, the IRS will say, well, you know, if you work for one hour for McDonald's a year, can still be classified as an employee. Right. And McDonald's has got to go to all the paperwork to get you set up on payroll and give you a W-2 at the year end. So it's, that's a tough question. Yeah. Um, I guess I was just trying to think like, you know. Well, well as far as giving them 1099s though, yeah. you want to do that. Okay. And I'll tell you why. I had, years ago, I was involved in an audit of a musician that worked at a local um, uh, establishment every Wednesday night. And so anyway, he just reported his take, but he was kind of like the band leader. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, eventually he got audited and he had this crazy auditor and he started off over the U of M Law School with their, oh, I know, I'm not going to give you more details because that may, may um, okay, oh, lead you to who it was. But anyway, I, it ended up falling into my lap and, and, and the problem was he hadn't given 1099s out to anybody. So he had to go back and do that for everybody. So really what you want to do is you, you want to report all your income that you make, say, playing a gig. And then if you give your band members over 600 bucks, you've got to give them a 1099. And then they deal with it. But hopefully they'll come up with lots of deductions for mileage and new gear and stuff like that. So usually, you know, hopefully they can get it down to close to zero or not That's a whole lot. That's the main of thing. Because I, like, I, I know as soon as I give them a 1099, then they also, of course, have to be reporting the same income. And, yeah. You know, so. But that, that's what you're supposed to do. Right. So that, that is the correct way to do it. And if you don't give somebody a 1099, um, 
you yourself can get into trouble, and then it, it just, it's, yes? Um, I had an artist uh, recently give me a 1099. I was the studio owner mm -hmm. and was the engineer for the project. Yep. Um, and, you know, he's, his band is mm -hmm. uh, registered as an LLC. Sure. Um, but that was actually the first time that I had ever received a 1099 from not, a band. Not unusual, but they probably did the correct thing because you were providing them services. And so it's in a business setting, 1099, you're not a corporation? Uh, no, right now, I'm just, yeah. Sole proprietor or an LLC? Proprietor, yeah. yeah. If, if you get services from a sole proprietor or an LLC, you give them a 1099. That's So that, So I should be asking all, all, every band that... Well, not necessarily, no. I wouldn't ask for them. You know, 1099s... Yeah, it's $600, right? Yeah, it's $600. So anything under 600 you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. But, but again, I mean, here's the... Yeah. You're going to report all your income anyway, so it doesn't really matter what your 1099s say. I call them just gentle reminders. They're not always accurate. Say you play a big gig on uh, New Year's Eve, okay, and, and you get a check that night, um, but there's no way you can cash it, or they put it in the mail and you get it the next day. The 1099 from that other company is going to include that gig, say, on New Year's Eve for 1000 bucks, but you're not going to get the money until the next year, say 2014. Technically, it goes on your tax return in 14. So that 1099 isn't right, but but it's right from their perspective. Okay? So then you just have to, on your, your tax return, you report the 1,000, then you back it off saying incorrect 1099. Now, we, get, we see that often. So whether people give you 1099s or not, it's not a big deal. The only time it's a big deal, if somebody makes a mistake, and instead of giving you one for 1,000, they, they add a couple zeros, and it says 100,000. And if you don't deal with that, you're going to get a notice from the IRS letter saying, hey, how come you didn't report this $99,000 of income? So as long as they look fine and you report more than the total of your 1099s, don't worry. You're, it doesn't really matter what you get. Frankly, for my law office, I throw them away sometimes. It doesn't matter because I never get 1099s from all my clients. Therefore, there's always a lot less than the, what I'm actually reporting. So it just that doesn't matter. It's not, not yeah. what they're sending in. Yeah, I, I go by what I actually earned. Yeah. But they're doing it to protect themselves. Yes, and they, as they should. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, I, almost, I almost told them to just forget about it. Like, don't bother yeah. with it. The only, here's, a, here's the one time you want to look at 1099s as musicians, and, and this is a whole hot-button issue right now. It's called Nexus, and that's when you play in different states. And I've had this recently with some clients where they get a 1099 that actually may have a little bit of withholding for another state or has been reported to another state, now, all of a sudden, the issue is, does that trigger a requirement for you to have to file in another state? And that's the whole Al Franken thing. Remember when he was running for senator? Al didn't pay um, less tax than he should have. He paid the right amount. The problem is he paid it all to New York, not some to Minnesota, California, Missouri, and whatever other states he, he went to. But when you physically go to other states, you potentially have a liability to pay income tax in that state if you perform there. And so I see that in states, you know, 10 years ago, this wasn't an issue. But now with computers and all this sort of tracking, um, the states, and plus nobody having any money five years ago, um, everybody, the states are digging for money, and they're looking to say, hey, who showed up here, who played, and can we get any money out of them? So you got to be aware of that. So that's one reason I'll look at clients' 1099s as a CG is, you know, I had some theater clients that, you know, they're out in New York and they had some ten different places and they had 1099s, that, you know, on the East Coast that showed where they were there, so we had to report, which was the correct thing to do. Okay. Ellen, do you guys want to give your little blurb here and then I'll go back yeah. to my outline? Yeah, and then I'll give you a proper <coughs> Okay. <laughs> sure.
Um, well, thanks for coming. I think I've talked with most of you, but um, if not, I'm Ellen Stanley. I'm the Executive Director of the Minnesota Music Coalition, and we're a statewide nonprofit supporting musicians across the state, um, providing the skills, resources, performance opportunities um, to have sustaining careers in music. And with that comes info like tonight, information about uh, tax tips and such. Uh, we host workshops usually the third Wednesday of every month, Workshop Wednesdays. And our next one will be March 19th at the Landmark Center, and it's going to be DIY booking, the do's and don'ts of what to do when approaching a, a venue owner or booker uh, to get the gigs that you want. So um, we're going to have someone from the Cedar, someone from the Aster, we're going to have Michael McGregor from Hello Booking, uh, Martin Devaney is going to be there. So artists, agents, venue owners will all be there. So, um, and we have flyers about that over there. You can sign up to be on our mailing list. And this is Taylor, and he can tell you about Music Mafia. <laughs> yeah. I'm from the Music Mafia, and we're a networking group out of Humans Win Recording Studio. Just a bunch of us got together, and we were like, we should create a place where we can have conversations about music with other music professionals, get to know each other, figure out how we can help each other, because we're often very segmented in our little industries. So we just wanted to host conversations and make new friends and work on new projects. So that's kind of our, that's the mentality of our monthly group, that we meet up in different places every month. And, usually, and like what, to, second Tuesday? Yeah, it's usually, the, or the first Tuesday, first of, Tuesday. Of, of the month, but we've been breaking that rule recently. <laughs> and tonight we purposely, we've been wanting, we've gone to each other's events and participated in each other's events, and we thought we wanted to jointly produce this one for you guys. Um, but sign up for both of our mailing lists, and we'll let you know uh, where our next things are. We're also on Facebook and whatnot. Um, and then I'm trying to think, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about in terms of upcoming events? Well, we, do, we don't have it all locked in yet, but we're doing a meeting in March, probably March 3rd or March 4th, um, about management. We're, having, we're teaming up with Demo, which is another uh, music nonprofit in the area, and we're uh, bringing in some managers and talking about management and the relevance in this day and age and things like that. So... Be on the lookout for that. Yeah. Also, the uh, Music Mafia um, takes suggestions from its members for a topic. So, if there's anything on your mind, any that you want to see, you know, materialize into a workshop, let us know. We'll, we'll make it happen. It's it's run by its members, and not by us. Yeah. Yeah. We just and we just organize it for everybody. <laughs> and then we also have um, in April, which is I know seems like a ways out, but it will be here soon. As we know, it will be right before tax day. Uh, April 10th through 12th, we have the third annual Minnesota Music Summit in St. Paul, and it's a three-day festival, free and open to all ages, of uh, workshops, speed mentoring sessions, networking at Summit Brewery. We're putting on performances. There'll be um, Girl Party will be there, Honey Dog, Southwire, um, some awesome emerging bands that you haven't heard of yet, but will. Um, so that will all be happening April 10th through 12th as well. So and now we want to introduce Brad Bagley, because he wasn't introduced, and he can say a little bit more about himself. Well, my background is I'm an attorney in the CPA. I've been working kind of in the arts and music scene here in the Twin Cities for about maybe 30 years now. I've worked with several artists that were, have won Grammys. You know, of course, now they all move on and take their stuff out to New York or whatever after they get kind of famous. Um, but I've also worked a lot in the theater and dance world. I was the board chair for the Minnesota Dance Alliance back in the 80s or 90s. It could have been. That was a long time ago. 
Um, and I still do work with a number of artists, though most of the artists I work with seem to be getting older now, like myself. Um, okay, the outline is um, organized into more or less three sections. We're talking about organize, know the rules, act on the rules. Okay, but but first, really, for the time a lot that we've got left here, about another half an hour, this kind of first two pages, I want to just kind of spend some time here. And you know, usually when I say I have these course takeaways, I want you to have a sense of what question to get ask, your tax is done, I think you're all doing that. I want you to understand that you can deduct everything that is ordinary and necessary. The tax code doesn't specifically say, well, musicians take this, doctors take this, if you're a carpenter, you deduct this. It doesn't say that. It says everybody can take and deduct everything that's ordinary and necessary. And for artists, that's fun stuff. That's why we get audited more often, or artists get audited more often, is because you can deduct trips to New York to see bands, potentially, and to meet with people, okay? You can deduct going to see other musicians, potentially. Okay, not in all cases, but sometimes you can. Um, you can deduct buying fun gear, okay? Creating a home studio that you use professionally. So because of this, um, musicians and, get, and artists get audited a lot more frequently than do other people. Um, I want you to understand a little bit the difference maybe between an LLC, sole proprietorship, and an S-corp. And finally, I want you not to be scared of the IRS. They're not the boogeyman. Every once in a while, you'll get this on kind of national TV that the IRS are all out there doing all these terrible things. They're not like that. I mean, there are people at the IRS, like any large bureaucracy, that aren't quite up to snuff. There's a lot of great people there. And as we'll find out in a moment here, there's a lot of them that really don't know the rules themselves. You know, because it's complicated. It's not their fault. They're not dumb people, but it's very complicated. So anyway, let's let's and it's ch ever changing. Okay, uh, back in the '90s, how you um, did your mileage or to find a home office was changing, and depending upon where you lived in the United States at one point, um, the rules were different. Now the IRS is that's supposed to be a national set of rules, but it really wasn't. There were different tax courts with different definitions of how you define a home office. Okay. Um, What's the big deal about being you know, self-employed musicians? Well, it's the FICA Medicare tax, right? That extra 15% that you could hit with on all your freelance net income. Okay, So that's kind of why a lot of you are here today, because you can earn you know, a modest amount of money, but you know, if you have to pay that extra 15% FICA Medicare tax, that can hit you. If you look over on page two, I did um, kind of an example down there under five unfiled returns. If all you had was you know, just freelance music net income of 20000 your federal tax would be $2,800. And about half of that is your 15% FICA Medicare. Okay. Um, but at the top of page two there, I talk about the hobby rules. And I can honestly say in my 30 years, I've never had a client. Um, well, actually, I take that back. I've had one client challenged on this, on the issue of the hobby. Okay. Um, though I wasn't there at the, at the initial meeting with the auditor, and that was from the state of Minnesota. The state of Minnesota right now, I just have to say, you know, um, they're a little bit, you know, I don't know if you've been following this thing with this Venus, uh, is it DeMilo? Venus DeMars. DeMars, Venus DeMars, and her audit, and I've actually talked to um, them a little bit on that and, and consulted there a little bit, but they're getting just, you know, getting ramshackled by Minnesota. And I've seen Minnesota do this to some other people. And, and it's funny because Minnesota doesn't really even have a lot to gain. The tax is only maybe 7%. The IRS, in my opinion, in 30 years, with my clients, have never done this. And, and, you know, my clients mostly aren't hobbyists. You know, hobbyists is, I always kind of define it as some guy that works at 3M, and he's an engineer, and he buys a bunch of fancy camera equipment, and he goes up north, shoots a bunch of pictures of ducks, makes very limited efforts to sell it, 
and he tries to write off all of his trips up north, all of his camera equipment. You know, it's fun. It's, you know, it's not really in it professionally, okay? Most of my clients are like kids that have gone to MCAD, okay, or have a degree from you, or people like you guys that are musicians that have been, you know, crafting your art for years, okay, and trying to, you know, you're, you're trying to make it big. You're trying to make it professionally. Um, and, and some of my clients have gone on and done really well. Other ones haven't. Uh, so i got to be careful now because like, I don't know how much I go to client stories now that it's being taped. Because <laughs> I fear some client will see that. That's me he's talking about. No. Um, okay, so the, the whole thing about the hobby loss rule, though, is, is remember this. A lot of people will say, oh, gee, if you have losses three years in a row, you've you got to stop. That's not the rule. The rule is if you have losses three out of five years, the burden of proof shifts. Now, you have to prove that it's not a hobby that you know, you're, you're keeping good records, that you're doing this to make a profit, that you're doing it similar to other professionals. You know, you're, you're out there like the other professionals in your industry, okay? Um, and you know, there's a bunch of different things you look at. It's a subjective test. Um, but I had Minnesota once with this one client. She was an artist. And all, I, all I'm going to say is without going into, she had some big, she had one sale fall through that, it, that if it hadn't fallen through, she would have showed a profit. You know, so, but anyway, they went after her because they, 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 one of the things they said, why, why, why this is a hobby, was because they said she kept poor records. Well, now she kept her records in QuickBooks, but she had changed a few numbers by hand, and so kind of added a few handwritten things on the side of her QuickBooks profit and loss. And they said this is sloppy bookkeeping. I'm thinking, huh? Hey, if half my record, half my clients were that organized in QuickBooks and all laid out, but you know. And then I, I took the, the, the auditor aside and he said, well, yeah, I agree with you, Brad, but my manager's kind of pressuring me to come up with reasons. And he, that, he said that off the record. So you can see Minnesota's really got kind of an angst going on here for artists, which is too bad because I don't, philosophically and socially, I don't think it's the right attitude to take because we need art in our communities and in our world, and so we need to support artists, not try to go after them in the way that Minnesota's been doing, but that's my little rant for tonight. Okay. <laughs> So, um, anyway, the, the whole thing about taxes is there's just a ton of tax myths out there. And, you know, the IRS and tax practitioners, tax practitioners both are constantly making mistakes. Um, you know, Money Magazine used to give these, like, I think it was like 25 CPAs, the exact same set of facts. Not uber complicated, but, you know, kind of middle of the road tax return. And every year they get back 25 different answers. Not even like three guys with the same answer, right? No, 25 different answers, and, and some of them vary dramatically in the amount of tax due or the refund. You know, they just, okay. Um, a couple of years ago, the commissioner of the IRS said in the Wall Street Journal, if you call the IRS on a technical question right now, you have a 30% chance of getting a wrong answer. Okay? So about, technical question, about a third of the time, they're wrong. Um, you know, I've said in... Audits with the IRS where, you know, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, my client, how they did their mileage. And, and I said to this one auditor once, well, you know, the guy on Sound Money said you can extrapolate. And that's, it, it, you know, I've done this before. You do it with telephones. And she goes, oh, no, you can't do that. And I said, well, she goes, well, what's Sound Money? Oh, well, you know, NPR. She looks at me and goes, well, what's NPR? We were sitting over in St. Paul, and she'd been there for 25 years, okay? Real nice woman, but, you know, she just wasn't really. So then I said, okay, fine. Let's bring your manager in. We explained the situation. She said what she thought. I said what I thought. He goes, okay, Brad, you're right. You can extrapolate. This is fine. I don't have a problem with that. 
Like I've had IRS agents tell me to, to extrapolate when my clients have really poor records. They'll, they'll go, here, let's pick out five weeks and just you figure out the mileage really good there and we'll extrapolate in. So it, it's, you know, part of it is who's your IRS agent. Some are really good, some are more middle of the road. But, you know, you got to understand tax law, the code is J-thick. You got all the regs and then you got all the court cases, okay? Um, so it's not always clean. Like what is ordinary and necessary? We'll look at that a little bit more later, but you know, it's a subjective call. It's not like black and white, you know, you put together a tax return like you do in a rector set. It's a lot of gray areas in there. Okay, um, unfiled tax returns. Um, there is no statute of limitations on unfiled, so always file your tax returns. Um, and, but if you do get behind, there's ways to get out. And one is this thing called an offer and compromise, and the other is called uh, bankruptcy. But to do bankruptcy, you've got to file your returns, and they've got to be out there for at least three years. And they don't like to make much note that you can do bankruptcy, but it is possible. I've had clients get out of back taxes via bankruptcy. Okay. Any questions? I'm kind of going fast here. Uh, bankruptcy and all that other stuff you're talking about? Yeah. What, what uh, bullet point? Where was that at? Um, uh, two at the bottom. Two at the bottom. Unfiled tax returns. Yep. And, you know, if that's a concern, that's something that, you know, you should talk to somebody about. Okay. You got to be organized, but you know here's one of the things: if if you're not, okay, it's not the end of the world. There's ways to work around that, and I always like to give this quote. It's it's out of the IRS publication 17, which is if you ever go online, just type in Pub 17. It's a great publication about individual tax. Um, pub 17. So. Yeah, just Pub 17. The IRS has all these publications, and on page 187, it says. It says that if you're lacking records to prove an element of an expense or have incomplete records, well, I would expect them to say then you lose. You got incomplete records, you can't prove it, you lose. You don't get the deduction. That's not what they say. What they say, and I quote, <laughs> if you do not have complete records to prove an element of an expense, then you must prove the element with your own written or oral statement containing specific information about the element and other supporting evidence sufficient to establish the element. Okay, so, you know, hey, you know, you, you bought a guitar from a friend for a thousand bucks and they moved to California, you gave them cash, and you know, you've got the guitar and, and you're saying, to them, well, you know, I bought this for a thousand bucks. Well, you can say, well, it's this sort of guitar, and if you go on, you know, eBay, that's what they go for. And even if somebody gave it to you as a gift, it's still, you get a carryover basis, assuming they didn't depreciate it. So you can still, like if your parents gave it to you, you can still depreciate it. So there's always ways to get around it if you don't have good records, and we'll talk about that. Even now for meals, any meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, if it's under $75 per meal, this is black and white letter law, you don't need a receipt anymore. Now, you do need to be able to say who, what, when, where, why. Why was the business deductible? I was out of town overnight for, for a gig um, because I went out with my manager to talk about our upcoming tour or trying to get some new gigs, and we had lunch at the Egg and I, and this is what we talked about. You know, as long as you, So that's one of the reasons you want to keep a good date calendar or a good calendar or a record because that's going to help substantiate maybe meals and where you drove and, and travel at your end. Okay. Travel yeah. Um, the per diem is actually more than I usually spend when I'm yep. traveling. So I've been taking the per diem. Oh, absolutely. Most okay. people do take the per diem. Yeah. But maybe it's an in-town meal and you don't have a receipt for it. Something like that. Okay. Or if you're somewhere real expensive. Skip yeah. and say, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Would uh, having like 
say you use your credit card and then mm -hmm. track back and find it on the credit card statement, would that work? They don't really typically accept that? Well, no, they'll take credit cards. For instance, like if you went to Willie's to buy a guitar or bought something there, that's going to be music related. Problem is, if you go to Target and you're trying to say, well, this was studio supplies, then you kind of need a receipt because at Target you can buy personal things. But what I'm saying is, if you don't have a receipt, can you at least show that the record, like, oh yeah, I bought it at this place, or if you buy it off like PayPal or something like that? I've done that. You know yeah. I, mean? I pay my rent for my studio, for my rehearsal space with PayPal every month, so that I, at the end of the year I can just print out a, like a long list. But, but, but see, but that's going to a landlord, so that's pretty clear. So they're, sure. you know. So, so again, yeah, pay, you know, paying things electronically is fine, or you know, however you want to do it. Um, but if you're buying it from a, a place where you could potentially be buying personal things, you're not going to be buying personal things from your landlord. Sure, right. So, but yeah. I got yeah. 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 One thing about receipts that you get from Target, though, is that after a year, you can't read them anymore. <laughs> That's yeah. my, that was my question. Well, scan, scan it in. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, it's fine to scan things. Scan, scan them electronically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, again, you, you got to do what you can do, and you know, usually they're, they're gonna, hopefully you get a reasonable IRS agent if you ever got audited that would understand. Well, yeah, it's faded, but it was there, and um, you know, if you can tell them what it was, but I, I'd scan it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I don't. There, there's a number of different things like that you can use. It's called Wave Apps, which it goes in conjunction yeah. with some bookkeeping programs for each. Yeah. Okay. But it has like you know, here's what I'm say about bookkeeping programs. My advice, and again, I know there's some free apps and different things out there you can use, but um, I usually recommend QuickBooks or Quicken, and, and I'll tell you why. If you want to go take a class in QuickBooks or Quicken, that's what they teach at the U of M, or at least they used to extension. Science Museum, that's what they used to teach, okay? More likely, if you ever do hire a bookkeeper, they're gonna know QuickBooks versus some other program, okay? Um, so it's becoming kind of the universal language of a lot of small bookkeepers, is QuickBooks. So that way it's, you know, um, oftentimes if you have a CPA, you can even sometimes just give them the file. So it's much more fluent than using some other program that might be free or something, but then people are going to like, well, I don't know how to use it, and it's not worth the time and effort for them to learn it, to try to pull your information out or help you. It's going to be more difficult. So Quicken is a, a great way to do your bookkeeping um, or QuickBooks if you have a small business. Um, I'm going to jump by the rest of the organizing stuff. Um, if you have questions about it, I'll try to answer them at the end. Okay, income. The thing about income is if you don't report all your income, that's when they can put the handcuffs on and take you to jail. So you always want to report all your income, okay? I mean, if you're going to audit, the first thing they always do is they say, well, you know, give us all your bank statements. And they add up, you know, total deposits for the 12 months. And they start that out as your income, okay? Um, so, you know, you always want to report all your income. Um, at the same time, you want to be real aggressive, you know, on your expenses, okay? Um, it's just like I remember a couple of years ago, I reading about how TCF was taking a bunch of its executives and employees out to, I think, Aspen for the Super Bowl. Well, I know they were writing that off, you know. So, you know, just as though the big companies can be aggressive, you know, so can musicians, you know. Um, you know, occasionally you could go to a, a seminar retreat outside Twin Cities and, and, you know, do that and, you know, schmooze and meet people. And, you know, like going to, was it, South by Southwest, same thing. That's write that off. You're going down there for business. Um, 
Okay, so um, what is ordinary necessary for an artist? And, you know, again, generally what are we going to see? We're going to see, well, maybe bought some CDs. Um, and here, here's, let's, uh, there's, there's actually a sample tax return in here. I'm not sure what page it is in your outline here. But there's a Schedule C in there. And, and you're all kind of familiar with the Schedule C. It's got all the different expenses on there. You know, if you look at the Schedule C, I mean, they'll say, what was your gross? Then you've got the cost of goods, which could be, you know, buying some, some you know, uh, manufacturing some C CDs or T-shirts, potentially, that you're buying, that you're reselling off the stage. Um, then you get out of cost of goods, and then you've got advertising that you can deduct. You've got your auto expense, which we'll talk more about later. You've got the depreciation for, like, equipment. Um, or furniture in your studio. You've got maybe some insurance on your gear, hopefully. Uh, maybe some interest on some loans for gear. Uh, getting your taxes prepared, professional fees, uh, supplies, strings, picks, um, travel, rent on a studio. Um, you could have meals, connectivity, internet, cell phone, uh, going to conferences. Just anything else that's ordinary and necessary for what you do as a musician will be deductible. And, and what does ordinary and necessary mean? Well, here's the actual definitions they have. Ordinary, it's a little bit different than you would think, is the expense is normal, customary, or usual. Usual for this type of business. Necessary means not vital for business, but rather appropriate and helpful for the business. Okay? So um, that's what we can deduct. So I often tell my clients, you know, bring me the kitchen sink. Okay? Because um, as a tax preparer, that's part of your job is to try to figure out, well, gee, you know, did they, they capture everything during the year? You know, where did they spend their money? Is it related to their business? You know, okay. And at the same time, sometimes when clients are just, you know, they've got maybe, you know, $500 in music income and, you know, $7,000 in meals and entertainment, you're going to say, oh, wait a second. You know, <laughs> tell me about this. You're really going out to eat that much and you spent, and where the money come from, by the way? for all the meals and entertainment. So, you know, you try to bring a little bit of reasonableness to the situation, okay? Um, home office. It's an area that constantly been in change over the last 20 years. Um, every once in a while I get somebody coming in and says, oh, don't take a home office. You know, I've been told not to take a home office. You know, you know it's a um, red button. You know, it's, it's going to, you know, flag my return for audit. And that's not true. Back in 1999 when they changed the rules and, and really loosened them up, what happened was the, the IRS really clamped down on what defined a home office and made it difficult. And IRS said, or Congress said, we don't like this, so they changed the law. They basically overrode the IRS, and that was the Solomon case. You know, it involved a doctor in, in, in his home office. And so basically today, for most artists, um, you can get a home office if you have an area that you use regularly. That's not a big deal, maybe once a week, um, exclusively. Now, theoretically, your, your, your office or if it's a studio, but if you have a home office, um, you can't theoretically go in there and, you know, do personal things, okay, like watch TV in your office or get on your, your, your computer in your office um, and do personal emails. It has to be used exclusively for business, okay, if you get audited. Um, which, you know, here's the thing, it doesn't have to be a whole room. It can be a desk in a corner that's all the music stuff and, and a little card table or desk in the other corner where you do all your personal stuff. That's fine. That corner can be your home office. And, and why do I want you to have a home office? The big reason is miles. Because if I have a home office, anytime I leave my home, if 
for business, the argument is I can deduct that mileage, okay? And, and this was recently where I had an IRS manager say, no, you can't do that. And, and I said, well, you know, I had an audit a couple of years ago where we had the same situation where it was somebody that performed outside the home, but had a home office, and we got an email back actually from the manager, this was down in Rochester at the IRS down there saying, yeah, you, you're right. The auditor's wrong, you get it. And, and I recently had another um, one audit this past fall, and I then later printed for them a couple IRS publications and highlighted some areas and said, well, you read this, you read that, it seems like it works, and I didn't hear a word back from them. They never said, but we got to deduct the mileage, okay? Because you had a home office. Because they had a home office. If you don't have a home office, does that mean you're not able to write off your mileage? mileage? Well, you can't, it well, th then you get in a whole other group of rules. And basically, if you don't have a home office, then the question is, do you have a significant place, you know, where you primarily work, do your music outside home? Let's say you, you, you um, work over at McPhail, okay? Then going from home to McPhail is not deductible, okay? But then going to temporary workplaces would be, okay? But the bottom line is, I think most artists want to have a home office. It's not hard to create it. It can be a cardboard table in the corner with all your music stuff where you do your scheduling, your bookkeeping. Just make sure you have two computers so that, that one. Well, yes, happens. yes. And then that's the problem with the computer today. And, and, Does yeah. it have to be cardboard? Pardon me? <laughs> it doesn't have to be cardboard, no. It's like um, <laughs> But, you know, um, that, that whole computer thing, that's, I haven't really seen much on that, but you just have to think that, yeah, if it's a, if it's a desktop computer that you can't move, you're going to be doing personal things there, too. So that's really not, in my book, that's kind of a no-no if you can avoid that. I have a question because I have three different places where I work. So I have a studio, yep. and then I have a, a little office uh, set up at home. Mm -hmm. And then I also do like DJing, so okay. vacation, wedding stuff. If I, can I actually like write off my mileage from going to my home to the, to the wedding gig or, in, or from my home to the studio every day? If you have a home office, it qualifies. And it's got to be the, the, the really, and, and to qualify, you, you've got to come in under, on page five here, number, well, your pages are different, I think, because you're on the back. Or are you, no, no this is page five. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. Um, so basically under the administrative and management test, okay, this is the new test that came out with the 99. Used to be your home office had to be kind of your focal point of what you did. And that was very difficult for musicians. There was one case where a, a violinist, I think, qualified. She rehearsed so much at home, you know. But that doesn't really apply to a lot of people because you go rehearse some outside your home with your band somewhere, and, and, and so your focal point is performing. But under the, under this new test, it's a lot easier to, to qualify, and you know it's got to be used regularly, exclusively. We talked about that um, to conduct the administrative and management activities of the business. And there's no other fixed location where you conduct those activities. Okay. So in your studio, what I'd say is basically you go to your studio, you do your recording and all that, but you take your billing or your, you know, your administrative side home. You don't do your QuickBooks in your studio. You'd like to do that at home. Okay. So then you technically have two workplaces? Well, you have one home office, okay. but, but you, you have another workplace and then going. If you have a home office, then when you, for that particular occupation, that would be a musician. Now, if you're also a carpenter on the side, and the home office is only for um, being an artist, it doesn't work for your carpentry work, but it works for your music work. So anytime you go to play a gig, 
go to the studio to do recording, go to somebody else's house to rehearse, go to the egg and I to meet with your bandmates to talk about, you know, writing songs. All those miles are deductible now. Okay. So you'd like to have a home office if you can. And then you put down the beginning and ending of every mileage, or do you just do it at the beginning of the year and the end of the year? Everything in between is just... Well, okay, let's talk. Here's what I tell people about miles. One is you, you want to keep an ending, beginning and ending odometer, because they, they ask, what are your total miles? And you have to give them that. There's two ways you can deduct your auto. One is you can take the 56 cents a mile, uh, which is for 2014, um, or you can take the actual cost of operating the vehicle times your business use percent. Okay. But, but either, either method you use, you have to tell them your total miles. They ask that question. Then you have to figure out, well, what were my business miles? And, you know, if you can keep a log, great. That's, you know, you just book everything that you go into your log and you keep that. I had one client who's a musician who had his car broken into, I think, three times in one year. And he goes, Brad, each time I grab my satchel and my log. <laughs> you know, and so what do you do? And, I mean, he, he was telling me the truth, you know. So... You know, that's, but anyway. Um, the reason why I was asking that is I put a website. And yep. wherever, I, wherever I go, I just do the mileage to and from. I just yeah. go to my website and do that. But I've never, yeah. I, I always do the beginning and the end of the year, but I've never gone down and said, you know, between this time and this time, you know, that's the, you know, that you're, you're saying that it's better to keep a log specifically saying what your miles are. Yeah, well, yeah, you have to have some way of, of you know, showing your miles. One of the things I tell clients is this. Maybe break your miles into three categories if this kind of works. One category would be those long-distance trips out of town. Go back and, and write those down. You know, oftentimes people come in and will say, well, you know, where'd you go last year? Well, we've done Chicago twice, up to Duluth three times, up to St. Cloud four times. We just figure out the mileage for those long-distance And usually people can remember those at year end. Okay? Then we say, well, what are your routines? And go, well, I go rehearse twice a week over at John's house, and that's X miles round trip. How many times did you go last year? Well, about 25 times. We went about every other week. We take round trip times 25 times. And the IRS says in their own publications, routines are an acceptable method of figuring your mileage. Okay, so that this is good by the IRS. So figure out our routines, okay? And maybe you want to throw into routines all your gigs because you kind of know those. That's known mileage because you can, you can go back to your, your, your gig calendar and calculate it. Okay, so you've got your gigs, you've got your routines, you've got your out of town. And finally, you've got those other miscellaneous miles you maybe put on every week for, for music. Maybe for six weeks out of the year, as long as you're driving similar throughout the year, keep really good detail on that. And then we extrapolate. And usually that number is going to be hopefully the smallest number. Okay, so it's going to be less material than the other three numbers maybe. And so really, even if that's off a little bit this way or that way, it's not going to really change the return that dramatically. Okay. So that'd be one way to keep track of your miles. Okay. Um, so let's see here. Okay. Meals and entertainment. Um, you know, basically meals are deductible, you know, if you're traveling away overnight, okay, you're playing up in St. Cloud and you stay up there at a hotel, um, or where there's a business discussion, you know, before, during, or after. And, you know, the whole thing about meals is you got to be reasonable. You know, you try to claim, you know, after every band practice you're going out for a meal, you know, and, and, and write that off, you know, eh, that's not going to fly probably. There was a court case years ago where these two lawyers went out to lunch every day and the court came back and said, look, we'll give you two out of five. We actually did discuss, you know, staffing, upcoming cases, you know, administrative things in your law office. 
but the other three, there's got to be some personal element going on there. Um, so again, it's that whole, you know, if you've got a close connection with who you're having your meal with, you know, there's going to be a higher scrutiny of, of was this really business related. Same thing with entertainment. Entertainment really should often be with somebody that's not like, you know, your, your bandmate or your, you know, it's more like, hey, this, this guy over this club's going to hire us. He wants to take us to a Twins game and we'll go. You know, and he wants to, you know, get to know us. And, and then afterwards, we're going to go perform that night at his, you know, club. Okay, and there, and there's, there's money being made. Okay. Um, travel out of town. Um, the big thing here is in the continental U.S., if you say take a trip to California or to Southwest or somewhere, and maybe you go down to Southwest and you also spend, you know, you drive up to Dallas for four days to visit some relatives, but you're down there for three days. Basically, the IRS says when you go out of town, whether it's airfare or driving miles, um, you can deduct that travel expense so long as it was, quote, unquote, primarily for business. And what they usually look at is the number of days you're out of town on business versus personal. And a business day is, is theoretically a full day of, of doing stuff. It can't be like, just, well, I had lunch with somebody. You know, um, that often won't fly. But then there's all sorts of little variances you can play around with. And this, this is where tax law, you know, it gets fun and creative. You know, if you fly to New York to meet with somebody on a Tuesday who's thinking about booking you or, or you know, recording you, but then you also want to meet with somebody on a Thursday, but they, they can't meet with you on Wednesday or Tuesday, so you stay over until Thursday to meet with the other person, you can count the intervening day as a business day. Or if you stay over Saturday night to get a lower, lower fare on a Sunday, you can count the Saturday as business day. So there's all these little caveats and ways you can kind of play around with the rules. Um, so. Is there like a rule of thumb then, like how many, what the percentage of time it should be business, like if it is well, well, service, 50, it's 50, it's, yeah, it, it, basically it's, it's, if it's more than 50% business days, you take the travel there and back. Now, for the days that you're actually there, the days that are personal, you don't get your ground transportation, hotel, or per diem. But for your business days, you do get ground transportation, hotel, per diem, or food, whichever it may be. Um, okay, healthcare, um, if you have net income from your, um, self-employed you know, music, which I assume everybody does in here, then you can deduct your health insurance on the front of your tax return, so you wanna be sure to do that. Um, you know, basically equipment, you can write it off when you buy it. You know, we used to have these chart, you know, it used to be up to $500,000. It's coming back down to $25,000 of, of new equipment and furniture. So you can write off immediately next year. Now, will that stick or not? That may get changed, we'll see. Um, we talked about inventory earlier did that make sense about the CDs, how you would handle those? Did everybody kind of get that? Okay. Um, so it's a central amount to just hand out to people. It's kind of like, you know, here it's kind of a promotional type. Well, let's say you spend $2,000 to get the CDs printed, and you give 1000 away. you got got 1000 left over. So on your, on, your, on your cost of goods, you're going to show, well, I, I bought 2000 Now I have 1000 left. So basically you're going to deduct $1,000 for the ones you gave away. So as you give them away, you get to write off the cost. Whether you give them away or sell them, so as that inventory goes down, you write that off. Do you need to have like a, a clear list of who you're giving these to and have it as clear as possible? You know, you, know, you should. I mean, to be honest, do most small band people do it that way? No. Sure. You know, you're, yeah, no. It, it, it'd be nice, but, you know, I don't think big record companies, well, they might have records of that, I guess, in this computerized age, but... You know, the, the more records, the better. But again, it's that materiality. And, and so I'm on tape. You've got to be careful what you say. 
But again, it's, it's, it's that kind of reasonableness, you know, that tries to permeate the tax code. Like theoretically, if I go over and help my neighbor shovel his driveway, he comes over and helps me paint my fence, that's bartering income. Value in shoveling the driveway, that usually got to hire somebody and, or hire somebody to paint, that's bartering. Now, the IRS says, well, no, we're not going to take it to that level, okay? So again, it, it's, you know. Can you do that though? Like, let's say my chiropractor gives me adjustments and they give me guitar lessons. Does, I mean, can you, can you claim that as, you know? Well, the, 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 the issue is, do you have income there that you need to report for teaching a lesson? For the value of the chiropractic. So that's a little bit different than that example they give. That's more like between neighbors. Now, if the chiropractor is like your, your cousin or your friend, or you know, you're probably okay. If it's more in a commercial setting, the issue is do you have barter income? And then you have to, you know, evaluate that and try to assess that out. So it's just like I had a client call me up and say, Well, you know, my mom comes over and she does help clean up the house, and I and I do help my parents every month with money. Do I should I, you know, is that income to her? Well, not really. It's your mom. Moms always come over and straighten up houses. So it's, no, no, don't worry about it. Now, if it was some unrelated person coming to your house and you were giving them money, then it looks more like a business transaction. Okay? But not so much with your mom. Okay. Um, we talked about this whole subcontract versus employee. And, and again, that is a hot button issue. Um, you know, what are people? And so, like, if you have a studio, for instance, a couple of you guys work in studios, if you have, you know, people coming in working there for you, the issue is, are they a sub? You know, here's what I always say. If, if they're an LLC, that's great. That really helps you, okay? It's always nice to write a check out to an LLC that's coming in, like, a sound engineer or somebody that's helping out, you know, in there versus writing a check to an individual that's in there every day, you know, 40 hours a week for, you know, four weeks, okay? Um, that 40-hour-a-week worker um, that maybe doesn't isn't that skilled, but it's kind of a you know kind of a helping you out and doing all that. that kind of is an employee, you know, somebody helping out in a studio. We see that a lot with photographer helpers. So you got to be careful how you deal with those people. And the other thing too is sometimes when you get those young kids that come in, they're working in your studio and you're, you're paying them as subcontractors, and, and they don't really realize what's going on. In the year they go to file their taxes, and all of a sudden they get a 1099 from you for. You say twelve thousand dollars, and now they got to pay the FICA Medicare on that, which is about fifteen hundred bucks. They're going, what? <laughs> I got to pay all this. I don't like this, and then they get all angry at you. So you always got to be clear to people coming in that work for you what the relationship I'm is. Um, if you are uh, the label owner and you have mm -hmm. people um, maybe coming in that uh, may or may not stay, you may or may mm -hmm. not want, um, would it not be best to? have like uh, those and bring those people in as independent contractors and then are you still for their withholding taxes mm -hmm. is it best to make them responsible for it or do you still have you know an obligation well the, the, the issue is that the minute they come in are they really independent contractors you, you may like that because it's easier for you from a bookkeeping perspective but if what they're doing is the equivalency of, of you know some, you know of being an employee, then if you misclassify them, then you're at risk. Okay, and if they are, if uh, it's kind of like test driving your car? Well, you don't get to test drive. You, you can't do that. They're, okay. they're, if you're an employee, you're an employee. Okay. There's no test drive period. Now, if they're an employee and they come in, you know, you can still get rid of them still. Right. Fire them. So it's better we're not an well, yeah. independent contractor paying out? Yes. And yeah, then, as the, as technically as the employer, 
that I would be responsible for the withholdings? Yep. And that's the easiest and best way to well, do that? Well, that, that's the cleanest way if you're able to do that. That, that there, there's, like I said, when I advise people, yes, they're going to play, there's, there's never going to be blowback to me. Right. There's never going to be a problem. More paperwork for the owner and more taxes they'll have to pay. But um, if I say, oh, yeah, they're a subcontractor, and then they get into trouble, they get audited by the IRS. They never audit anybody and say, oh, that employee should be a subcontractor. It doesn't go that direction. Okay. It's always employees it should be, or subcontractors should be an employee. It always goes that direction. That's where then they get all these additional taxes lumped on them because they didn't pay the FICA, and there's penalties. They didn't pay the Minnesota UC. There's penalties. Yeah. And, uh, but if you are do legitimately have a subcontractor for, yeah. for a very specific project, if you have like if you're very clear with them and you have a contract with them saying that they are a contract well, employee, then you no, win, right? Well, no, you don't win. Okay. It's one factor. Mm -hmm. If you're going to have subcontractors, yes, you'd love to have contracts. We have a little sample contract we'll shoot out to people. Clients are saying, "Oh, I'm going to hire a subcontractor." Well, you know, if you're sure there's subcontractor, it's fine, but you know, still do a contract. It's, one, it's part of that subjective test when you're looking at are they an employee or a subcontractor. That will help you in your defense, mm -hmm. but it won't necessarily win if the Minnesota UC comes in and says, no, I think they're an employee. Okay. You can still lose. Okay. So by doing the withholdings as the label, yep. you kind of, whatever trouble they may or may not get into, mm -hmm. that kind of separates you from them, right? As long as you've done the correct withholding. Correct. Okay. You're not going to have any trouble. Okay. Yep. You get them to sign, you know, the W-4, the I-9, all that sort of fun stuff. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see here. Sales tax. Oh, boy, this is a fun one. I'm going to just touch on this briefly because we're running out of time. Um, okay. Okay. So um, here's the thing about sales tax. Um, it's... You know, especially if you're if you're music and doing advertising and, and different things, there are issues of you know when do you need to do you ever need to charge sales tax on your CDs or T-shirts? T-shirts, no. But um, here's what I always tell people about sales tax. One is call them. You know, when you call the IRS, you'll sit on hold for 40 or 50 minutes, and then they'll hang up on you. Okay, it's very frustrating dealing with the IRS on the phone. Minnesota sales tax, they pick up the phone. They'll even call you back if you're not sure what the answer is. Okay. Also, you can email them on their website a question, and within three working days, they'll get back to you. Okay? So if you're involved in kind of advertising, music, making videos, um, there's a lot of gray areas out there. So you want to, you know, given your fact pattern, and there's all sorts of different fact patterns, you know, see when you need to be charging sales tax. The other thing is use tax. And, you know, I do know that a while back, for instance, like all the, the um, people in audio, we're getting audited by the Minnesota Sales Tax Department. Minnesota figured out a few years ago, hey, we can make money by going out and auditing all these different industries. And sales tax, people are doing it wrong. And plus, so they hired all these young or new auditors. They went out there, and for a while I was getting clients in engineering were giving me all calls. Oh, we're getting audited for sales tax. Are we doing it right? And different things like that. And so anyway, um, be sure that you're doing your sales tax correctly. The other thing you got to watch out for is that when they go out and audit, they, they look for use tax. And that's when you buy things from out of state, like from um, what's those people down in Chicago that uh, Newegg that sell gear or different whatever things. They don't charge sales tax. Now, if you buy something from Dell, yes, they'll charge sales tax or some other places. But if you're buying things from out of state where there's no sales tax charge, theoretically, you, the consumer here in Minnesota, has to pay a use tax. 
Like okay. Amazon or yeah. Yep, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Back to Minnesota. So you got to be aware of that. Okay. Um, there's, a, there's an exemption form uh, that my accountant had me. Oh, for, because it's being used in manufacturing? What's that? For the use tax? For, uh, actually, for sales tax. Oh. Um, he said as long as. Well, that's when you buy stuff, right? Uh, uh, well, here's the thing. Yes, this is probably over the head of everybody. And there, I know there's a form, like certain times if you're buying certain things that are gonna, you're going to sell that are going to be sales taxable, you can buy the ingredients that go in sales tax free. Okay? Um, so, yes. It was a services thing because, um, because the studio offers services mm -hmm. um, and we don't actually, no one actually leaves with Physical products, it's all digitally okay. transferred. It was, it's like a sheet that, yep. like, that claims. Yeah, yeah, I think it's like an ST3 form. Yeah. Well, again, see, again, you get into all that gray area, like you're saying, well, nobody leaves, you know, but in some studios, they'll give them something hard, and so then there may be sales tax. So, again, when it comes to sales tax, rather than try to answer individual questions right now, I would say you just have to take your fact pattern and make sure that it's clean. Because like you said, your, your sounds like it's clean and you, you, you vetted it with your CPA the way you're doing things because you're, you're doing it all digitally, which is fine. So, but if you don't, oh yeah, I gave them a flash drive, well, now you've got a potentially sales taxable situation. Yeah. So you just have to be careful how you're doing things. That's the point I want to make here because we've got 10 minutes to go. And we're, okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, retirement planning. Okay. Let's talk about how we operate here in Minnesota. Basically, by default, everybody's a sole proprietor. Every musician that goes out there and performs, you know, whether they're, they're part of a band, whether, you know, um, that's not incorporated or an LLC or something like that, you're just, you know, gigging, you know, it's a side person maybe. Um, you're a sole proprietor. And so you really don't have to do much. If you're operating under your own name, you just go out there and you collect your money, you pay your expenses, and report your income or your loss. Um, the next step up is form a limited liability company. And, and, and if you don't have any partners, your taxes are identical to a sole proprietor. And all you really get is liability protection for, for your music-related actions. Okay, and, and, you, and the liability protection is no different than a corporation. It's equivalent, okay? Um, but the, the advantages of an LLC is it keeps your taxes really simple, okay? The next step up is to form an S corporation or to take your LLC and to request to be taxed as an S corporation. You have two ways to get there, okay? And people do that because they don't like paying FICA Medicare tax on all their earnings. And, and there's a loophole. In, fi in fact, Hillary Clinton, when she was trying to pass the whole health care reform back when Bill was president, one of the ways they were going to fund health care reform was to eliminate this loophole where S corp owners didn't have to pay FICA Medicare tax on all their earnings. Um, but basically, you know, not until you're earning maybe thirty, forty thousand a year should you consider an S corp, and you're doing that consistently, because there are some downsides always of being an S corp. There's more paperwork. Uh, you got to do wages now for yourself. Um, your home office may be limited. There's some different things like that. So you got to be careful that the S corp is the right way to go. But you know, people that are making eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year. What they can do is they can say, well. I'm going to pay myself, quote, unquote, a fair and reasonable salary. What is that? I don't know. You know, there's different ways you can try to do that for musicians to figure out what that should be. 
But if you pay yourself a fair and reasonable salary, let's say that's you know, $60,000 on a you know, $95,000 net profit, you can avoid them paying any FICA Medicare tax in $30,000. What's that, about $4,500 you save? So that's why people form S-Corps. It's called the FICA Medicare tax games. I go to my seminars, that's what they always call it. Oh, it's a FICA Medicare tax game, yeah. You know, but you know, every once in a while you see somebody come in and go, oh, yeah, I've got an S-Corp and I, I made $80,000 and I paid myself five. And I was out there performing all the time, and yeah, I avoid all this fact medical tax. I'm like, well, you're going to get audited, and you're going to lose, and and they're going to they're going to call everything subject to FICA Medicare, and and so you really don't want to do that, and um, you want to figure out what a fair and reasonable salary is and pay that, okay? But but an S corp is the next step up, okay? Um, yeah. I was just going to say that if folks want more information about just the business entities part, we actually did a whole workshop on that. And okay. I have a, um, a PowerPoint about that sure. uh, that was geared towards musicians. And I, mm -hmm. if you contact me, I can email you. Okay. So finally, I'm just going to say you want to act on the rules, which means always, you know, if you don't file your return on time, always file an extension, okay, because it, it uh, gets rid of some of the penalties if you owe money. Um, if you haven't done your 1099s yet, go do them, okay? Because if you're worried about somebody being called an employee, the penalties are less if you actually file 1099s. And if you file them by paper, you have until the end of February to file the 1099s, or if you do them electronically at the end of March. There's really no harm in giving somebody a 1099 now. There's no real penalty that I'm aware of for giving somebody a 1099 after January 31st. You know, and theoretically, they're reporting all their income anyway, so if they get mad at you and hostile, they'll why are you giving me this 1099? Well, Aren't you reporting all your income like you should? You know, so, yeah. You know, um, so and, and you know, most people haven't filed their returns yet, anyways. But you should always do your do that. Um, if, you, if if any of you do have mem other members in your LLC that you're, you know, you want to file your partnership returns on time, um, pay your estimate taxes if necessary. Um, you know. And in audits, you know, the, the IRS aren't the bad guys. I mean, they're trying to do a good job. It's just the rules are confusing. I'll say that. And, and just the next big thing, I think, for a lot of musicians is going to be this issue eventually of nexus. When do you have to file in other states? And, you know, it's the Al Franken question. It, it, people, it, that was great. Poor Al, because I, I like Al, but, you know, you know, he got really tagged with that one. And yet, it's, it's a growing concern for a lot of people. And people making mistakes in their taxes. And you know, taxes are confusing. That's why Tim Geithner, our former Treasury Secretary, every other year he'd have a professional prepare his taxes. And he had mistakes. Okay? You know, this is the Treasury Secretary. You know, he's in, eventually in charge of the IRS. Um, they're making mistakes. So, you know, it, it's tax. You made a mistake with the guy that he hired? I think a little bit of both. I think he has some issues with his taxes. Yeah. Are you less likely to get audited if you... Are the Treasury Secretary? No. I don't know. That's a good question. Well, if you have somebody and you're working with... You know, like Not necessarily, no. Well, maybe less likely because it's going to look better. They, hopefully, they, they should, you know, make sure that no numbers look in the wrong place, that, that you did things correctly. So... And that's about when we got kicked out of the library. But I hope it was a helpful episode. Thanks again to Brad Bagley for giving this talk. If you want to get in touch with him, go to BegleyLaw.com, and that's spelled B-E-G-L-E-Y Law.com. Again, remember to check out Brad's packet of info at 
composerquest.com slash tax tips. For those of you who stuck it out to the end of this episode, I have a little Easter egg. This music you're hearing, you probably thought it's from the year 1990, but actually it was written in 1690. A guy named Giuseppe Torelli originally wrote this Sinfonia in D major for trumpet, strings, and harpsichord. I was looking on imslp.org for some random public domain music, and I found this MIDI performance by Michelle Rondeau of this Torelli piece, and so I took it and replaced all the original instruments with a bunch of random, cheesy synth sounds. This symphonia in D major has survived for over three centuries, and yet I destroyed it in under 15 minutes. Sorry, Giuseppe. Thank you.